Father, we want to open your word now together. We need to hear from you in the midst of our lives, um, that you would speak into our lives with your truth and your instruction, your encouragement, your counsel. Uh, Lord, we remember uh, the Lord Jesus particularly this week, week and his life and his death and his resurrection, and we're so thankful that because of him uh, there is hope for us, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, and that those things have profound effect in our lives each day. And so would you help us to see how the work of the cross uh, transforms the everyday struggles that we face. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so just yesterday, we completed our second annual community uh, outreach event where we um, host a life topic and have a special speaker to try to be a blessing to our community in terms of equipping our community for care and, and ministry to those that are struggling. Uh, our topic yesterday was PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, how many of you know what that is, actually? Just raise your hand. Okay, yeah, most of you. So those of you not familiar with it, um, it, it really is a, a series of, of symptoms, chronic symptoms, that people that are exposed to significant trauma sometimes develop. So we're thinking about our soldiers that have been in combat situations. We're thinking about uh, sexual assault and, and rape victims and other, other abuse victims. Uh, we're thinking about uh, our law enforcement personnel who, who are sometimes the first to arrive on the scene of an accident that's been uh, very graphic in terms of the injuries. Um, that's what we're talking about. And, and, and those that, that struggle... Um, they struggle with just ongoing anxiety and fear, uh, sleeplessness, flashbacks, all sorts of symptoms. And so uh, this is kind of a growing struggle in our culture. And so uh, Dr. Greg Gifford from the Master's College was out here to minister to us. And it was a great, uh, a great time. We had a great turnout. So thank you for praying for that. But in bringing up the subject of fear, we might think that, well, if I don't have PTSD, that, uh, that maybe those things don't apply to me. And, and yet the reality is that all of us struggle with fear and anxiety on some level. Um, and in fact, uh, what I want to do is, is kind of in light of the, the seminar uh, yesterday and, and sort of standing on the shoulders of what David did, uh, David Gibson did last week in Ecclesiastes, I want to come and talk today about fear and anxiety and how God meets us in those moments to help us and transform us. Now, uh, you may know, not, not just PTSD, but anxiety disorders in general have become somewhat of an epidemic in our country. And we're talking something like 40 million people that have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or suffer from an anxiety disorder, something like 18% of the adult population. And that's up from only 19 million four years prior to this study. So, so it really is growing exponentially. Anxiety disorders through our healthcare system cost $46 billion annually. Uh, when we do research, uh, guys that do research on what people actually are anxious about, Americans are anxious about their finances, 48%, 34% are anxious about health issues, 32% anxious about employment issues. I mean, there's all sorts of things to worry about. And uh, what's interesting now is, is to hear what does the average American do when they're stressed, right? What, what do they do when they're kind of at their wits end of anxiety? Well, uh, here we go. 82% 
will watch TV or Netflix, they'll read or listen to music, something like that. 71% may talk to a family member or friend. 62% will pray or meditate. Uh, 55% exercise. 37% eat. Uh, 26% will turn to smoking, drinking, or drugs. And about 12% of those population will end up on a prescription uh, drug of some sort. And, and speaking of the psychological drugs that are used to treat these sorts of things, in Canada, th- this, is, this is profound, in Canada, uh, psychological drugs are the second most prescribed drugs next to cardiac medications. So people that have heart issues and are on meds, that's kind of the first class. Well, the second group of meds are going to be those that are designed to help psychological issues. In America, the most popular psychological drug used to treat anxiety is the ninth most prescribed drug in America. Can you believe that? The ninth most prescribed. So you've got all of your heart medications. You've got your blood pressure medications. You've got people that are diabetic. I mean, all, all those all those people that are, that are getting medications, this uh, anxiety, anti-anxiety drug is number nine in the most prescribed list in America. 34 million prescriptions a year. And uh, the second most uh, popular drug used to treat anxiety is the sixth most common uh, by sales. So in terms of the money that's brought in on the drug, $3 billion when this study was done. So, so okay, what do we, okay, we know it's a problem, right? We've, we've proved that statistically. We know that sort of anecdotally. So what do we do? What, what expert research is being done to give us help? Okay, so I want to I give you the latest. I want to give you the cutting-edge research that really, really smart people in our country have come up with to help you cope with your anxiety. Okay, you ready? Here you go. Have a national stress-out week. How do you do that, by the way? Do you have, a, do you have a, an app on your phone where you just you do the slider and it just eliminates all stress from your life for a week? Don't you wish we could do that? I often wonder, the people that come up with this, you know, do they actually... Do they have a way of doing that? I have not figured out how to eliminate any, any and all stress from my life. Um, now, there is a National Stress Out Week. It's November 12th through 18th. Did you know that? So if you get, if you get anxious in the spring, you're kind of out of luck uh, for a few months, I guess. Um, so what do you do? What do you do during National Stress Out Week? You take five deep breaths. Should we just do this together? It's a group therapy. Um, visit five loved ones. No, that, that's not bad. That's good. And breathing is good. Uh, better, uh, you can throw a stress-free house party. In fact, you can contact the Anxiety Disorders Association of America for a free house party kit, shipping included, and they will they will walk you through how to do all this. And I'm not making this up, guys. That that that, that is the best that this broken world has to offer. And, and these these are smart people. These are researchers. These are cutting edge guys that that that, that work in the medical field, in the psychological field, and that's it. Well, I've got some good news for you, and that is God's Word has infinitely better answers to your fear and my fear. So if you haven't already done so, uh, would you turn over to the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter 3. And we're just going to look at a couple of verses here that, that really jump off the page uh, as, as we have been reading, as, as you're reading Proverbs. Um, some of you like to do the proverb of the day where you read one chapter a day. And uh, I don't know if you have this experience, as I've done that. Every now and then you're reading and something will just leap off the page. And, and I think these verses uh, do that. So let me read these verses uh, to you and then I'll kind of tell you where we're going to go. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 25 
and 26. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Okay? The title of the message today is Panic Attacked. Panic Attacked. So if you ever struggle with anxiety, worry, fear, you're in the right place. Okay. Now, what we need to do, if we just parachute into these verses and try to make sense of them, we really miss a very important context that Solomon has already set for us in the book of Proverbs. Okay. So we need to back up before we get into the sort of meat and potatoes of, of this actual verse here. We need to back up a little bit. And I want you to first embrace a biblical understanding of control, okay? We need to start here to embrace a biblical understanding of control. You say, where does that come from? Where does control come from? Well, it's actually in the context, and we just didn't read far enough back to see it. So in in chapter 3, just back up a little bit to those verses that I know many of you have memorized in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, that's what sets the table for what he's going to talk about here in the fear and confidence verses in 25 and 26. Okay, So the first thing I want you to see based on those first couple of verses in verses 5 and 6 is that we were made to trust in and depend upon God who alone controls all things. That's what these verses are calling us to do. To trust in God with our whole heart, to not lean on our own understanding, but to acknowledge Him in all our ways. If we were to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we don't have time to do that, we read the account of God making people in His image and in His likeness. And if we were to go back and read that, we remember that when God made Adam and Eve, He didn't sort of wind up the spring of humanity and then send Adam and Eve on their way, and then God walks off the scene never to be found again. That God intentionally made people to depend on Him in countless ways. Uh, Paul in Acts says that we depend on God for life and breath and and everything, right? Even down to the breath that we're breathing right now. But we were made, humanity was made to trust in and depend upon God. And the, the, the flip side of that is we're made to be dependent because God alone is independent. He is the sovereign Lord or ruler of the universe. He alone controls all things. That's what, that's what that term sovereignty means. He rules over all. God micromanages every atom in the universe so that it always accomplishes his will. That is what he is doing. He is the man behind the curtain, pulling all the levers, pushing all the switches, making the universe run. And and we know that because we read, for example, uh, in Psalm 103, verse 19, his sovereignty rules over all. And we read in texts like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that that Jesus himself as the agent of creation and as the agent to sustain this world is running it all right now. Okay, you don't look. You don't look as as profoundly affected by what you should be based upon what I just said. Look out the window. What do you see? You see anything? 
I see grass, I see sunlight, I see wind blowing. Why is now that happening? Because Jesus is running and ruling and holding his universe together right now. If he were not to do that, we wouldn't have any of that. Okay, so God makes us to trust in and depend on him, and God's job is to run and control the universe. Okay, have you... Have you learned yet that you don't control all things? Okay, if you haven't, you're in the right place because Solomon is going to help us to see that better. But see, that's where we start. We have to start with what he says. We're made to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. Secondly, we also note that God has given abilities and responsibilities to people which he commands us to fulfill as his stewards as we depend on him. Now, now think with me. Back, Go back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, God creates Adam and Eve. And um, does he say, okay, see you guys later? No, he gives them jobs to do, doesn't he? He gives them tasks, to stewardship. So what were some of those things that God called Adam and Eve to do? Do you remember? Tend the garden. Okay, what else? Name the animals. What else? Be fruitful and multiply. What else? Yeah, the theologians call it the cultural mandate. They, they were to steward all of God's creation. So, so when you go to work and you build things or you design things or you produce things or you fix things or you, you help people get better in, in the medical community, whatever you do, you're living out this cultural mandate that takes the stewardship that God gives us and we, we use those things for His glory. We, we have responsibilities and tasks that God assigns to us and we live those things out through our vocations, through our families, and in other areas of responsibility. So, so that's, that's where we start, okay? We cannot understand this issue of panic and fear and anxiety if we don't recognize that God is the only one totally and completely in control of all things. We are made to depend on Him and trust in Him as we follow these responsibilities that He gives us. Now, what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis? Everything goes wrong in Genesis chapter 3, right? When Adam and Eve fell into sin, it fundamentally was a rejection of their dependence on God. And you remember how the narrative went, right? As the serpent came and tempted Adam and tempted Eve, it's questioning God's ability. It's a questioning his goodness, questioning his wisdom. And where Adam and Eve ended up was at this place. We would be better off figuring this out on our own. So they come to their own conclusions, they make their own decision, and what happened in Genesis 3 was a rejection of their dependence on God and their trust of Him as they turned away in their sin to go a different way. The the illusion that Adam and Eve bought into was the idea that they could be self-sufficient and they could be self-dependent. This idea that they did not need God. I mean, just imagine... Just imagine, some of you have little children in the home. Just imagine if your two-year-old got up one morning and said, Mom and Dad, I don't need you at all. I'm just going to go get my own place, get my own vehicle, get my own food, and I'll just be, right? And we would laugh, right? We, we, we would laugh and that child would not survive very long. That's why God gives little children parents, right? That, that's part of the design there. And yet that is exactly what humanity does to God. Like a two-year-old, they look at their parent and say, I don't need you when they depend on that person for their very life that day. 
And of course, Romans chapter 1 shows us the, the commentary on Genesis 3 that fallen humanity exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they pursued their own autonomy and their own independence apart from God. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you all of this because you need to see what this, this last line says here on your notes there, okay? The reality that the fall into sin was one of rejecting dependence on God and rejecting a trust in Him. The fall expresses itself in your life and in my life in efforts to sinfully control ourselves, our environment, and other people. Okay, did you get that? Have, have you noticed that we all have a, an obsessive compulsive disorder with controlling things? Admit it, you do, okay? You really have. And that, that compulsion, that, that drive to try to control me, control you, control our environment, that's just the echo of what happened in Genesis 3 when dependent human beings made to depend on a God who controls all things rejected that. And now we assume in our fallenness, in our, in our craziness, we try to assume God's job of controlling all things. Do you see that? See, some of you still aren't convinced, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, you have a pop quiz right now. This is the control freak quiz, and you're going to take it right now. Okay, so five, you rate yourself one to five. Okay, five being very often, one being seldom. Okay, so we're, we're going to try to see if we all have control issues. Okay, number one. Do you help other people drive when you're in the car with them? <laughs> Tell them what route to take, when to turn, where to park, how to park. Remind them that the traffic light has changed, okay? And some of you are pointing at your spouse. Uh, the idea is to take the quiz yourself. You can take it for your spouse later on. Number two, do you devote a lot of attention and energy to keeping your personal environment organized? How are we doing? Do you give, is it a house or a museum? Is that, anyway, uh, number three, um, do you give people a lot of shoulds and oughts? Unsolicited advice, suggestions, constructive criticism. Number four, are we all going to be friends when I'm done? Still, do you have lots of personal rules, routines, rituals, ceremonies? And when those things don't go as planned. Number five, are you the one who takes over and orders other people around when the situation seems confused? Number six, do you dislike depending on others, accepting help from them or allowing them to do things for you? Number seven, do you insist on being right Having things done your way, even theologically profound things like how you load the dishwasher or load the toilet paper roll. Is this too convicting? Is this too personal? Number eight, do you, <laughs> I love this, do you, do you over plan simple activities? I mean, do you have a routine for brushing your teeth every night? Come on, be honest. I mean, do you over plan a shopping trip to HEB? Um, okay, number nine. Do you find it difficult to admit making mistakes, being wrong, or misinformed about something, or acknowledging that you've changed your mind? Number ten. Do you become angry 
irritable or anxious when someone or something makes you late. Even a train. When things don't start on time or things don't go according to plan. Okay, add up your score. If you were in the 40s or 50s, yep, you're definitely a control freak. Um, okay, how'd you do? We just all put our hands up and say we're guilty. We're, we, we, we have this disorder. Okay, so that's actually really good because by putting your hand up, what you're saying is you're a human being. You're a fallen human being made in the image and likeness of God to depend on Him. But because of Adam's sin, we grate against God's authority. We try to assume His control. We get very frustrated when we can't control things that David reminded us last week we weren't intended to ever control. And here we are. Okay? Now, why is that so important? Okay, you you need to get this. When we talk about control, sinful control is when we pridefully strive after the comprehensive, sovereign governance that only God possesses. Sinful control is a prideful striving after the comprehensive, sovereign governance that only God possesses. And that's why you and I are frustrated so much. We're grabbing the controls from God that only He can control. And that's a problem. Do do you remember, do you remember the preeminent example in the Bible of the guy who has control issues? His name... Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, the the, the original control freak in the Bible. Now, you remember, this is the king that when he didn't get his way, he killed people or broke things. That's pretty much how he responds all throughout the book of Daniel. I I want to show you this, okay? Because I want to show you why this is so assaulting, so dangerous to God. Turn turn back uh, to the book of Daniel. Just hold your place there in Proverbs. I just want to show you this one example uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's life and ministry. And of course, you, you know the story. Um, the book of Daniel is, a, is cataloging the life and ministry of Daniel, a Jewish teenager, and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are taken from their home in Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity. They're taken back to Babylon, and they're put in the king's service. You remember this, right? These are smart, talented, good-looking boys, but they were godly men who would not defile themselves in that pagan culture. Well, you remember the story, uh, God revealed a dream uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel interprets it, and it talked about uh, the, the prestige of his kingdom. And, uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar went out and, and did what we call the, the, the statue got me high. You remember that? Where you know, he has this dream and he, he comes out, okay, great. And so he builds this huge statue on the plains of Dura. And, and, and most commentators think that the statue was probably a statue of himself. And then, uh, and then he gets on the local uh, Babylonian radio station. Okay, they didn't have radio back then. But, but he got the Babylonian orchestra together and he said, okay, when, uh, when people, when you hear the orchestra play, and they would have music, uh, music, uh, musicians all throughout the land, when you hear the musicians play, what do you do? You stop what you're doing, what do you do? You bow down and worship the statue. Well, of course, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah said, we can't do that. We're breaking the the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments if we do that. So we can't do that. And word gets back to the king. And in Daniel chapter 3, we'll 
we'll pick up the narrative here. But I, I want you, I want you to see how Nebuchadnezzar responds. This is a, this is a very graphic illustration of what we're talking about here. This, this sinful control. Okay. So he hears about it, and we'll pick it up in chapter three, uh, verse uh, thirteen. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, see, there it is, right? He's got, he's got an anger problem. Uh, orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's, that's the Babylonian names of the three Jewish boys. And uh, they came and they were brought to the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready. I love that. If you are ready. He's given them a second chance. At the sound. The moment you hear the sound of the horn, the, the lute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, we, we've run through the orchestra there, all those instruments, all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made, then very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And then he says this. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And if this were a movie, that's where you would hear the music kick in. Dun, dun, dun. Right? And we see what normal, fallen human beings can think and say when we reject our God, when we do not see our dependence on Him, and in our sinful illusion, we try to control things that we can't control. And he is so stuck on himself that he actually says, not even God can stop me. Watch this. And you know the story. God delivers these three teenage God-fearers out of the fiery furnace. Just a chapter later, after being warned by God that God would take his kingdom from him and send him out to the pasture to live with the cows in this bizarre judgment, Nebuchadnezzar is standing on the roof of his palace. He's looking around. He says, look at this Babylon that I have made with my very hands. And the scripture tells us that while the words were still coming out of his mouth, God executed his judgment and sent the known superpower ruler to the pasture in a, in a very bizarre but graphic judgment. We say, well, I've never said anything like that. I've never done anything like that. You know, the reality is, every day, we strive to sinfully control things that God has not asked us to control. And those are an expressions of our pride and our sin. Now, interestingly enough, the only human control... God does want us to control things, right? God does want us to control things. The only human control that the Bible authorizes is a spirit-empowered self-control for the purpose of glorifying God in biblical obedience. And if we were to go over to Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruit of the spirits is self-control, right? So there is a good kind of control... But it's a spirit-empowered self-control that is used to glorify God in biblical obedience. Ironically, the Bible is going to tell us that that righteous control is only realized when we deny ourselves. Isn't that interesting? 
self-control, godly self-control starts when you deny yourself. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. Jesus said, that, that's the gospel. The gospel is rejecting this self-attributed, illusory autonomy that pretends to be God. And that's what we all do as fallen human beings. And it's rejecting that. It's repenting of that. It's turning away from that. Turning back to God in humble dependence and trust. Denying ourselves. And when we do that, God says, okay, now you're qualified to control yourself in the way that I want. Now, this inherent tendency to pursue sinful control is often exaggerated and developed further into life-dominating realities by various experiences. And this is where we think about something like a panic attack or a PTSD. Uh, Our soldiers that go in combat situations in war, people that have close encounters with death, abuse or assault, other traumatic experiences, that, that there's something about this part of our fallenness that when we go through certain experiences... It makes the problem worse. And I'll, give, I'll give you an example that has nothing to do with PTSD. Have you ever been wronged seriously by somebody that you trusted? You've been wronged by seriously. You've been hurt deeply by somebody that you trusted. Okay, I won't ask you to put your hand up, but just okay if that's happened to you. Does that make it harder to trust other people sometimes? Sure, it does. Do you find yourself maybe trying to micromanage that relationship a little bit more because you don't want to get hurt again? Of course you do. That's what we all do. That, that, that's what the Bible is helping us to see here, that, that experiences often take this, this sinful tendency that we already have and exaggerate it. And when we live in these sorts of challenges, it, it brings lots of hard things. Now, can I take you to the playground for a minute? You need to see that the way the Bible put... We're going to get to Proverbs. Trust me, we're going to get to Proverbs. This is all all introduction. You need to see that when the Bible connects a trust in God as dependent on Him and this sinful fear, that there's actually a connection between the two. And and the best way I can illustrate this is by taking you to the playground. It's like a teeter-totter, okay? When my perception of my own control is up, sinful fear will be down. When my perception of my own control is down, then my sinful fear will be up, right? Here. Okay. When you feel like everything is where it should be, you know, your house is clean, your bills are paid, everybody's healthy, right? Kids aren't cough, 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 right? They're not sick with the flu. And you go, life is good. You're not going to be so tempted to sinfully fear when you have that perception of control, right? Because things are good. But what happens when the kids get sick Extra bills come in. We're doing our taxes right now, right? Some of us are going through this right now. And, and you go, ah, I got guys up, right? And at that moment that I start feeling out of control, that's when I'm tempted to go to sinful fear and react out of that, trying to control things in a way that God doesn't want me to control. Do you see that? It, they're, they're related like, like a teeter-totter. And, and what, <laughs> what Proverbs is going to do says, get off the teeter-totter. You need to get off the teeter-totter in a trust in God. Okay, so we'll see this in a minute. Okay, so sinful fear will lead me to pursue sinful efforts to either regain control or at least my perception of control. Okay, and and that's where we actually realize, you know, you find 
we pursue peace. We pursue trying to regain that sense of control in all sorts of misguided ways. Think about uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob and Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau, the twins, Isaac and Rebekah's boys. And uh, Esau was the older by a few minutes, a few seconds, since it was twins. Um, and uh, do you recall that in their family there was some favoritism going on? What was going on? Do you remember? Esau favored who? Or uh, I'm sorry, Isaac. I just gave it away, didn't I? So I'll just tell you, Esau is favored by Isaac. Now, why, why are, why are they, they the favorites there? They're hunting buddies, right? Esau loved to go hunt. His dad loved to, I'm sure, taught him and go with him. They were always out at the deer blind all the time. And, and that, that made a bond that ended up being inappropriate. Well, what about Jacob? Yeah, he's the mama's boy. Why is he the mama's boy? He's the gourmet cook, right? He's in the kitchen with mom and, and cooking stuff. And, and, and you know the story, right? Esau comes in from, from hunting, uh, says, hey, make me some of that red stuff, Jacob, and, and, and the plot. But, but you understand that, that what happened here is a great illustration of what we're seeing. When I feel like I'm out of control and things are getting out of uh, proportion, I am prone to act out of sinful fear to try to regain control. And that's what Rebecca did, right? She comes up with this whole plan to deceive her husband. And, you know, we're going we're to disguise yourself like your hairy brother, take advantage of dad's poor eyesight so that he gets tricked into giving you the blessing instead of your brother. That's what's going on here. And you know what? We do things like that every day. Maybe not on that scale, but we act out of sinful fear to try to regain control in situations where we're not getting our way. Okay? Now, sometimes this sort of thing can be uh, extremely overwhelming, and that's where we get something like a panic attack or something like that. Okay? So... That's all introduction. Let's go back to Proverbs now, okay? You, you, but you needed to understand all that because otherwise what Solomon says here will not make sense. We need to understand how control fits into the equation of fear. So now we go back to Proverbs chapter 3 and let's look at this together, okay? Proverbs chapter 3. And remember the context here, okay? The context of Proverbs is a dad, Solomon, sitting down with his children and he is instructing them in the way of wisdom. And uh, it starts in chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And then as he develops this, he's going to call his children to walk in the ways of wisdom. And rather than just say, here's, here's what you need to do, he personifies wisdom. He, he talks about wisdom like a lady. Lady wisdom. You want to desire her wisdom. Desire her um Benefits, right? Verse 16, long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Verse 17, her ways are pleasant. She is a tree of life. Okay, you get the idea. So it's wisdom personified. And as he turns the corner in verse 23, he's going to talk about one of the benefits of wisdom. Okay, 23. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 23. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be... What does it say? Afraid, when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So what he's saying is, he's saying, son, when you walk in wisdom, that will absolve a struggle with fear. You won't be afraid. You'll, you'll sleep soundly. And that's what introduces now our verses that we want to look at. Okay? So with that all in mind, here we go. Don't 
Be afraid of fear. Don't be afraid of fear. Look at verse 25. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. And, and have you ever read that? And you ever read stuff in the Bible and you just go, what on earth does that even mean? Because it sounds like he's saying, don't be afraid of fear. And that is what he's saying. He's saying, don't be afraid of fear. Say, don't be afraid of fear. What does that mean? With, that's why we need the background of control. What he's saying is, don't be afraid of feeling like you're in a place where you're out of control. When that illness comes, when that bill comes, when that relationship dissolves, when that, when that uh, hard conversation happens, when that, when that family issue arises, when you get that phone call or that text message bearing bad news, when the accident happens, when the medical diagnosis hits, whatever it is, and in that moment you feel like, ah! Solomon says, you do not fear when that happens. You say, well, why do we don't have to fear? Why not? Well, he's going he's gonna to get to that. But, but this, this sort of thing can happen when there's a sudden loss of someone or something valuable, a catastrophic experience, just feeling a loss of control. That's when he says, don't be afraid of that overwhelming fear, of that, of that overwhelming situation. Now, I've got to ask you a question. What is it that you fear? We need, to, we need to do this. We need to personalize this or it's not going to help us. If this happened, I couldn't deal with it. What is that? What's the situation that you couldn't deal with if it happened? Right? You got that in your mind? Solomon says, don't fear that day. Don't fear being in that situation. Don't fear being helplessly out of control when that day comes. Now, there are some good fears. There's what uh, the Puritans called natural fear. You know, it's springtime, which means you might step out on your porch one night and you're going to be looking toe-to-toe with a copperhead because they're coming out of hibernation right now, right? Um. Well, it's a good fear, right? There's good fears. You shouldn't go ahead and just step on the snake and get bit and have a, make a trip to the emergency room, right? There, there are good fears, natural fears, fears of legitimate danger. But the Bible gives us these categories of fears that are sinful. And we need to be careful because the, the, Solomon helps us to see what are the things that are, are really, truly sinful fears, fears that we need to repent of. Well, we see in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, a fear of man instead of the fear of the Lord, right? You know what that's like? Have you ever made a decision because of what someone else is going to think about you? You ever done that? Admit it, you have. Nod your head. I have too. Okay? That's what he's saying. That's a sinful fear. When we act based on uh, a desire to please someone else or to keep them happy with us, instead of fearing the Lord, that's a sinful fear. He also talks about a fear of things temporal rather than things eternal. You know the passage in Luke 12. Jesus says, don't, don't fear those who cure, kill the body and afterward can, can't do anything else. Fear the one who, after he has done those things, has authority to send you either to eternal judgment or to eternal life. Fear that one. So when, when we get caught up in the things of the world and we forget that eternity and the things of the Lord matter more than the things on this earth, 
That's a fear we need to reject. And just fears that things for things that God forbids, like we're talking about here. Don't be afraid of that, that day of terror, that day when your worst nightmare comes to pass. Listen, it is sinful to fear when God says not to. Right? It is sinful to fear when God says not to. What is the most common command repeated in the Bible? Do not fear or fear not. Right? Okay? And it is sinful to go ahead and fear when God says don't. And that's what he's saying. He says, don't, don't fear. Don't, don't fall into this trap. Notice what he says there. Do not be afraid of sudden fear. Don't be afraid of that, that worst day that you could imagine. Or the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Do you see that phrase there? That probably means the day when the wicked attack. And what he's saying is, do not be afraid when the worst possible thing happens do not be afraid when you feel hopelessly out of control now why not here's the takeaway we need to embrace the lord as your confidence embrace the lord as your confidence verse 26 for the lord here's the reason you don't have to be afraid of sudden fear you don't have to be afraid of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes why because the lord will be your confidence And he will keep your foot from being caught. What's he saying? He's saying a confidence in the Lord is the solution to sinful fears. And I bet that most of you already knew that. Right? You knew I'm supposed to be trusting God. That's the answer to everything. That's true. But I want you to see there is no magic answer here. There is no special technique. There is no higher plane of spirituality. There's, there's no you know, secret code that you get the game hack to get through in spirituality. Guys, when you're dealing with overwhelming, crippling fear, when, you're, when you feel hopelessly out of control, when you're tempted to act based on those sinful fears, your only hope is simple, childlike trust in your Heavenly Father. That's it. You know, if you're like me, the hard part of this is not knowing the answer. It's practicing it in the areas that I really struggle with. Right? But that's it. A confidence in the Lord, what does that mean? It implies a trust in Him, a submission to Him, a fear of Him above all other fears. The the word fear actually occurs in the book of Proverbs 23 times. 19 of those times it refers to the fear of the Lord. You say, what's the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is living in ongoing, simple, abiding trust in God in every circumstance. It's saying whether I feel, feel in control or I don't feel in control, whether I'm getting my way or not getting my way, whether I'm struggling in the situation or not, that I trust my Heavenly Father. Guys, he runs the universe. Did, 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 you, did you see? Did you see the picture of the black hole? This is actually it's, not, it's deceiving. It's not a picture of the black hole because the black hole, by definition, sucks in all the light. So you can't actually photograph it. You can photograph all the stuff around it, right, Dave? Am I doing okay? Okay. So, and, and right. 
And you look at that and you go, it's taken us how long to figure out how to take radio antennas all over the world and focus them into this massive telescope, this earth-sized telescope, so we can photograph the shadow of a black hole for the first time? (laughs) God made the black hole. He knows about all the physics long before Einstein did. He does that. Look at, look around and say, my father has done all of this. Why can't we trust him with our problems? Why can't we trust him with our concerns? Why can't we trust him with our fears? And you know, the Bible is not telling us anything we don't already know here. Listen to Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Finish it. Whom shall I see? Right? Psalm 56. We read it. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. You're getting the idea, okay? Psalm 112. I'll read this a little extended, okay? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now listen to this. He will never be shaken. He will not fear evil tidings. Why? His heart is steadfast. Trusting the Lord. Psalm 118. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Did you see this? It's like the Bible is saying the same thing different ways. And you would be right. Because it's about a trust in Him, a dependence on Him, a walking with Him. Um, do you remember, some of you have little infant-sized children and, and mine are all grown up now. Do you ever seen a little toddler or a little infant and, and they're upset about something and they're, they're crying and they're upset and, you know, someone stepped on their toe or, you know, feeding time is done or mom woke them up and they're just, right? And, and then mom grabs them or grandma grabs them. And, and do you ever see that child just kind of snuggle in? And then if you're watching carefully, there's a shoulder thing. Have you noticed the shoulder thing? It's when the baby is tense and he snuggles into mom and he's kind of like this and then his shoulders do this. Have you noticed that? Okay. The word used here that means confidence, okay? Confidence means a calm, cool composure. It's that... In fact, there's a whole verse on that. Be still and know that I am God. That's what this is about. That's that's the the solution. That's the confidence we can have in the midst of fear. Now, now, it's Palm Sunday. We're going into Passion Week. We got Good Friday and Easter Sunday coming. Have you ever thought about what all this is about? What's this week about? The gospel and Jesus and the cross. What's it all about? The story of the gospel is about what we're talking about. It's about a good God who controls everything, who makes us to depend on Him and trust in Him. It's about our own sin, where we reject that authority. We, we assume that we can do it without God, that we're independent, that we don't need Him, that we can control things on our own. And then what do we do? What do we do when we did that? 
We destroy people. We destroy relationships. We destroy this planet that God has given us. We destroy our very selves when we live apart from God's design. And you know what the gospel is? This week of the gospel is about God sending His Son to reconcile sinful, autonomous-seeking rebels to Himself. And you know the reality is our frustration in control, our sinful fears, our disquieted hearts are everyday reminders that we need a Savior from all of this, don't we? That's what he's doing. That's what this week is about. He's calling us back. Will you turn away from your autonomy? God's looking at our life and saying, you've made a pretty good mess, but I'll take you back if you trust me. Will you turn back to me? Turn from your old rebellion. Come back. Submit yourself to my control. Trust me, and I will make all things well. That's what this week is about. If you're not trusting in Christ or if you don't know him, in that way. That's what this week is about. That's what the gospel is about. God's calling us to turn from our rebellion to simple trust and dependence on him through the person and work of his son. Jesus said this, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have helped us through this text and in, in the others we've looked at, to see our need for a Savior, how every day as we strive in sinful fear to control things that we can't control. And Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus through his life and death and resurrection has allowed us to be forgiven of our rebellion and to come back to simple trust and dependence on you who alone do all things well. Lord, I pray that as we're reminded of the cross this week, particularly as we remember uh, Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday and these events, that these are not historic facts merely to look backward at with admiration. These are spiritual realities that we need every day in something as simple as common frustration. Father, rescue us from ourselves. Rescue us from this chronic, obsessive, compulsive disorder to control things around us. Help us to rest in and trust in your good plan and your kind ways over us. In Jesus' name, amen.